for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business, Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. And welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And we're going to talk about a topic of allyship, amongst other things in this podcast, because it's something we haven't actually covered before on the HR Uprising podcast. And to do that, I'm delighted that I've got Julie Kratz from Next Pivot Point joining me all the way from Indianapolis, I think. (laughs) Julie, hello. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. Welcome. Um, I'm so excited to be here and thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I do inclusive leadership training, all things diversity, equity, inclusion, based here in the U.S., but have had a chance to uh, interview a bunch across the pond as well on my podcast. So delighted to be with your listeners. Fantastic. So you can share some of the insights both places. I always think that um, in the States, you're ahead of us in the UK in terms of DEI type thinking. Um, and I guess let's go straight into, so I've done, we talked a little bit about DEI and we'll go for, back to that. But this concept of allyship, um, that just piqued my interest. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I use allyship and inclusive leadership pretty interchangeably because to me, the terms mean very similar things. Uh, Inclusive leadership, I think we think about the workplace, but what we know is that there's no on and off switch to allyship. So if you're doing it at work, uh, hopefully you're doing that in your home spaces as well, in your personal spaces. And when I think about allyship, the most simple way to define it is to support folks that are different from yourself. So that certainly can be from a gender or a race perspective, and we love to go to the optics, the things that we think we can see. But more often, even race and gender are very much a fluid spectrum. There's a non-binary component, a biracial, multiracial component. There's just so many more complexity to those conversations that we've given airtime to. And then you think about disability, neurodivergence. Uh, You think about LGBTQ plus age class. There's so many wrinkles to this. And as you said, the U.S., I think just by necessity has had to lead this the way a bit in the DEI work. But what we're finding a lot with our global clients is there's nuanced differences in regions. You know, what I've noticed in the UK, for example, is much more um, progression, especially in the Scandinavian countries on gender. And because they've dealt with the systemic issues around sexual harassment and caregiving leave that the U.S. just will not deal with just frustrating I think and then race countries are, are ahead of the UK and that's, that's to do with government policies yeah. and supports of, of caregiving it, you know it's very interesting that in terms of the, the child care for example is on the oh, major. it's a huge issue and here in the US you can't afford child care it's a, it, it should not be that way right why is that 
Um, but then you think about race too, and it's very different in the Asia Pacific region versus in your part of the world versus, you know, the U.S. just has so much diversity of race and ethnicity is different than race. So, so many conversations we can have, but allyship, when you think about it, it's just, I really think it's just being a good human, being there for somebody that's had a different lived experience from yourself. And do you think you've got to, because it's an interesting thing, because, um, we might think that we're good humans and um or we mean to be is there something about how how we need to hold a mirror up or reflect on on whether we are being a good ally to someone else um yeah it's it's other sort of i guess actually if, if we were thinking this from the context of this audience not only ourselves as role models being in an hr or people professional role but also if we want to support others in our organizations to do that what would you see we need to do yeah i think uh, human resources leaders really historically have had uh, a lot of power in the dei conversation i mean yes and no i mean if you have a seat at the table reporting to the ceo you definitely have you know that type of power oftentimes what we see though with dei work is it gets buried under the hr function and then it's it's nested and it's not got that same you know closeness or proximity to power and decisions that are made and that isn't well resourced. So when I think about HR leaders, if you're in a position like that where you're having to wear multiple hats, as many are, or having to manage DEI folks when you may not have that background yourself, is what you can do is empower those around you. You know, if there are people passionate about diversity and inclusion. Find those allies, build those ally networks. It doesn't have to be you doing the heavy lifting work. Oftentimes there's councils or committees, employee resource groups. Uh, I also struggle with that because these people are often have their day jobs and then do this DEI work in addition to that and usually aren't compensated for that, although we're starting to see that as a trend here in the States. But aside from that, I mean, I think practically HR leaders you know, think about the folks that are passionate about these issues that you already know. They could get a bit of a kind of groundswell effort. Um, and then think about your proximity to the C-suite. Who are your allies there? And it's kind of like, you know, the bottoms up, the top down approach. I kind of see it as a both and. <laughs> you need both. Uh, because what we're actually seeing, uh, the biggest challenge with DEI work is middle management. And it's not a surprise, I think, because these folks have probably been in the workforce probably as long as I have been now, you know, a couple decades. DEI was not a thing you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s when they entered the workforce. So it kind of been missed from a training or a cultural perspective and now we're playing catch up. And if you're a white man, it feels really weird. Right? And so I think HR professionals, you know, if you can reach the C-suite, Get some, you know, groundswell from the, the bottom up and don't forget about that middle manager. If you can tap them into, get them involved in training. I mean, most often they really need education. It's a huge part of the ally journey. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an interesting one because a lot of these people, I mean, including it, some people have been in the workplace for a long time, we, you know, since the nineties, myself as well. Um, even as a female, still a white female in a male organization. So you do, you, you did experience, we did experience some sort of discrimination, but you kind of didn't recognize it or acknowledge it. So probably this population of people, they don't mean not to be allies, but they perhaps 
there's also this thing where they might be a bit reticent about um, being politically correct or or otherwise. So, um, you know, are there ways in which, well, how would you educate somebody? Because uh, they they don't mean not to be an ally, but then they don't want to be artificial either yeah. in terms of pretending to do it. Uh, you know, what's what's the view there in terms of how how we we can all be more self aware or help those types of people? Yeah, yeah, that's uh. Uh, that's my passion area is if we could just reach these folks, I think we'd reach more tremendous change much more quickly. We have a lot of fence setters, like you said, that are kind of stuck in the middle. Like I want to be an ally, but I don't know how. And the biggest thing with the how is just knowing maybe the, the don'ts first. <laughs> what allyship is not, is not a rescue situation. This is not, I'm the savior. Let me come and get you much like the storybooks we consumed as children. And that's from a race perspective too. White saviorism is a very real thing. So steer clear that, you know, people in wheelchairs, for example, talk about people countless, you know, just wanting to help, help, help. But it's like, they are they can function fine on their own. They may need a door open for them or something like use common sense, but don't go into savior mode. So rule number one, no rescue capes needed. Rule number two is this isn't about you. And this is a mistake a lot of white men make. Well-intentioned is, okay, I've done all the education. <laughs> like, I'm here to be your ally. I, I'm so upset this is happening. You know, and, and it's like, this is not something that's happening to you, right? It feels patronizing. Yeah, it feels dismissive. It's like, I've been walking around my whole life dealing with this. And now you've decided that this is an urgent issue. And you saw this with Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2020. It was just on display, white people in solidarity, great intentions, but it comes off uh, it, it comes off as using power over and in making it about our ego and not about the mm -hmm. cause and the person you're trying mm -hmm. to help. So focus on sharing power with that person and make the relationship about that person, not about you. And then you know, shifting to the do's, I think one of the biggest things is educate yourself. If you don't understand systemic racism, if you don't understand gender issues currently in the workplace, if you don't understand what neurodiversity is, uh, that is a topic that will be very, very front and center in the workplace for a long time because Gen Z has a much higher rate of awareness and diagnosis with that, as well as LGBTQ+. Increasingly, we're seeing folks identify as non-binary using they, them pronouns. So I think sometimes we think, oh, this is a fad. You know, this is something that'll go away. The, the data shows it's actually just beginning. And so if you get ahead of it and you're more proactive versus reactive later, you know, you're going to be in a better position to be a better ally. So educate yourself on the things you don't understand. Fill in the gaps and don't ask people marginalized groups to do that work for you like tell me everything <laughs> there are documentaries we have a full resources list on our website so go over there i vetted a whole bunch for you there is some good stuff out there digest some content on your own and then if you still have questions you know google or a search engine usually can return some reputable sources if you still have questions then ask folks that you know and folks that you have a trusted relationship with uh, and the two other things I'd say on the do's column is one, one of the biggest things as an ally is just practicing empathy, you know, to avoid, this is me, rescue situation, which no one really wants, especially when they're sharing painful things with you, is to practice empathy. I don't know what it's like to be you. And I'm going to try to take on that perspective, right? And that's all that people want, 
to you understand that there has been something painful that has happened. There has been a system that's kept somebody down and that you empathize and understand more about the problem, even if you haven't experienced the problem. And the last tip I'd share is really about um, vulnerability and in building that kind of trust. When we lead with vulnerability as allies and just say, I don't know what I don't know. Uh, I have weaknesses. I admit my mistakes. It, you're going to bumble and stumble. You absolutely will make mistakes. And what where mind goes to, because we don't want to be called any sort of ist, is to defend. Um, when we feel shamed, when we feel blamed, we defend and we entrench and often in that non-inclusive behavior. So instead of going to that kind of reactive response, think about it as a learning opportunity. And all people want to hear often is that you're accountable for your mistake. I'm sorry, I made that mistake. And that's it. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this whole long explanation back to you and centering you. It's about who you have harmed and acknowledging harm and that you will learn and do better next time. So that, and, and that makes lots of sense. I've got a couple of kind of slightly questions. I'm not even sure whether they're going to come over correctly as questions, but it's, you seem like the right person to raise, raise them with. So the first one that I see, so let's imagine that I'm a senior manager and I want to demonstrate allyship to um, to someone in, 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 in the uh, team, same team as me or whichever it is. The thing that seems to be tricky about it is that by me demonstrating the allyship, I have to almost expose the difference. So I think that's why people sometimes quite so if I say, oh, you know, I'm a friend of mine's sister's in a wheelchair, and obviously you could talk about that, but it's almost like going, oh, do you need anything different? That that seems to be almost like the awkward thing because there is you're trying to ignore the fact there's difference, whether it's race or gender or whatever it might be, in order to act like you don't see that difference. But then how can you demonstrate the allyship? I don't know if you understand what Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, color blindness and yeah. shushing disability. And we don't talk about issue, personal issues like LGBTQ, you know, in the workplace. I mean, these things that we've been conditioned to just brush these problems aside. And that's the problem. If you don't acknowledge as a problem, you can't solve it. Yeah. So I, I'd actually say, yes, talk openly about yeah. differences. We see differences. Everyone sees different shades of color. Even colorblind people can distinguish races. Yeah, my, so my, my daughter's it. got red hair. So she there, there's plenty of um, difference that, that gets raised there. And that's not seen as a... As a nice... Right. People see it. Let's not pretend like, oh, I don't see the red hair. It's like, yeah. yes, you do. Stop saying that. And so that's a very harmful belief that got manifested a lot of times with the generation that now are managers in the workplace right. too. So I know what you're saying is, no, acknowledge that there are differences. And I, I think what you don't want to do is single somebody out because of their differences, right? Like, oh, the one person in the wheelchair, explain what it's like to be you. Like that is going to cause a lot more harm than good because it's othering that person. It's making yeah. them feel like they're different than the rest of the group. So I think the best way to do this is more in one-on-one -on -one conversations, especially if you're a leader. Help me understand, you know, and, and again, the education piece, I did some of my own education and here's what I've come to learn. I'm just interested if what kind of experiences have you had at our organization? How could I be more supportive? What's one thing I could do to make sure that those things don't happen to other people? A type that's of dialogue. Yeah. That's right. Especially with your direct reports um, to say, hey, I acknowledge that this is an issue and I want to know what it looks like here. Don't pretend like it doesn't happen here either, because people love to say that, like, I know that, you know, sexism and racism are issues elsewhere, but it's not happening here. 
I promise you it is because we are human beings and these are human issues and we're all swimming in the waters of these problems. So pretending like it's not happening here, please don't do that because it's very dismissive to people that have had adverse experiences. And once you open your ears and you hear stories and you will hear a lot of stories like Lucinda, I'm sure you can share countless stories, things that happened to you in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I think we're also conditioned to be like, oh, it's no big deal. I got through it. Yeah. Right. I remember when Me Too came out and I was like, oh, that didn't happen to me. And then my friend started sharing stories with them about, you know, somewhat innocent, but deeply inappropriate touching in the workplace. I'm like, oh yeah, that totally happened to me. And then I'm like, oh, shoot. I was pretending too, because we just got so conditioned to yeah. think like, this is normal. Yeah. And so you really got to drop the normal, actually just get rid of the word normal altogether and be open to these are problems that most humans are facing, especially ones that are different from us rather than judging their story, their differences. It's about curiosity. Yeah. How can I be curious? And how can I be part of the solution versus the problem? Because if you pre- pretend the problem doesn't exist, you can't solve it. Yes. Okay. So that's that makes a lot of sense. I've lots of stuff going through my head there about generational differences and how basically a lot of us are now a different generation. Um, and I really liked the solution that you suggested about going educate yourself. So going with some data that I've read about, so I can see that this is an issue. And I'm sure you're going to some of the data, um, you're going to po- point us to your website, aren't you, at the end of the podcast. So I guess that might might be a good place for people who want to educate themselves to start, I'm guessing. Um, oh, for sure. You know, finding good resources is so important. Yeah. And then, and that would be a great segue into have a, have it, have an authentic conversation as opposed to how are you kind of patronizing. Now, this is my second slightly um, off the wall one, but it's a genuine question. So um, Julie, on your, we're talking on Zoom and you've got next to your name on Zoom, she series, which I assume is a pronoun, a different way of expressing Mm -hmm. the pronouns thing by saying she series. I've not seen that over here. It's normally she, her or whatever. Um, now, I haven't gone down this route yet because I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. Um, and what I want to know is, um, do the people who are um, non-binary, I'm guessing if that's who, do, 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 do people appreciate it? Um, or is it is it something that is kind of cool and, um, you know, it's about being woke, probably using that in program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but people go there in their minds. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. be part of that woke culture. Yeah. So is it, like is pronouns, it, like that's like my personal business. Why do I need to use that at work? I've heard yeah. the, that feedback. So it's very real. So yeah, yeah. So is it something that's genuinely valuable to people? Do you think? I think think about it this way. If you think about it from the vantage point of somebody that doesn't exclusively identify as male or females, so that would be somebody that identifies as gender fluid, Uh, gender non-binary, like you said, and a lot of folks, especially Gen Z folks, they're just like throwing out this old outdated recipe of the binary, which by the way, is kind of a recent invention in human civilization. Many cultures, Native Americans, African cultures have had three to five different gender identities. So this isn't like a new thing. This is actually like we're returning back to like our historical roots. So that's something that's kind of a fact that's kept from us. The other thing is, um, for folks that identify as non-binary, when I've asked them, how do you feel about pronouns? They generally share as like, it's helpful for me because it takes the burden off of me to always have to like help myself. So it's kind of like, and and this is different than being gay, right? Because you could stay closeted in the workplace. And most people, 50% of folks are closeted in the workplace still, if you believe yeah. that or not. And our pronouns though are used so commonly right? She said this, her, whatever possession. 
we use pronouns in general language, so it's a bigger deal. And you could argue, yeah, that's a personal, it's not a choice, it's an identity, it's not a preference, it's who you are. But you could argue it's a personal piece of your life, but aren't we trying to bring our whole selves to work? I mean, do you really want to ask somebody to like compartmentalize your gender identity for the eight hours you're at work a day? This just doesn't seem realistic. So what I've heard, I put she series because it's not very common even here in the US, but I, I was like, she, her, hers. I was like, that seems repetitive. And then someone told me just put she ser- series that was in the LGBTQ plus community. I was like, okay. So that's what I've stuck with on my Zoom handle. Um, I think I use more traditional ones like she, her on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, you can add your pronouns to um, on your email signature. So those are three places I would consider adding your pronouns. If you have an event, have a place for pronouns. I was at an event recently where they actually ran out of pronoun tags. So people want to do it. I mean, it's it might feel like, oh, wow, this is like another step I have to do or like this doesn't feel genuine try it out and see the reaction you get. I, I've never knock on what had a negative reaction from sharing mine. And if anything, it's a signal. So I'll just share like a quick short story. I have it in my email signature. And sometimes I use my work email for personal things with my daughter's friends and things. So it's communicating with one of her friend's moms. And I'll never forget. She wrote me back and she's like, I noticed your pronouns in your email signature. My son's gay. I know I can talk to you about that. Right. Like bingo shortcut. You are so that's almost the strongest reason I was thinking about I might do that now. Yeah, it's like, oh, listen to someone I can trust, I could talk to. It's a signal, you could call it a signal of allyship, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't you make sure you're doing it with well intention. If you're just doing it performatively, like I'm an ally, look, I put my well that, I think that's why I asked the question because I'm like going I'm not really up for doing something just for the sake of it but I think if it's perceived in a, a way that people go okay then the, in the way you describe then that is a reason to do it yeah. um, in, in my book but uh, yeah okay thank you for that uh, right so going kind of slightly back on, on track but I thought might as well ask those questions because it might be they might be questions in listeners minds as well themselves because they're genuine questions for me uh, if we just took some ideas from organizations that are doing this well, have you got any ideas or tips or techniques that you could share with the audience that they might be able to pick up on? Yeah, a couple of things, especially I'm seeing um, here going into the new year is we're getting back together and doing things in person, at least here in the US, not as much. Like We're super intentional with our FaceTime now, which I, I love because we were spending a lot of time traveling that could have been spent doing other productive things. So leadership retreats with DEI on the agenda, I think is something specifically, you know, if you have access to leadership, if you're a part of leadership, make sure if you're doing an offsite, a team building, a retreat, a strategic planning meeting, and diversity and inclusion is a part of that. Because if you're not talking about that in that type of setting, then it really isn't important. It needs to be embedded into our culture. So that's one, make sure it's on the agenda, key leadership um, uh, gatherings. And then two, measurement. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows that DEI has not been well measured. Very few organizations measure it. If they do, it's usually in a traditional employee engagement survey, which those questions were designed with a different purpose. Uh, the kind of questions we want to ask for DEI are very specific. And, and often they're not a lot. You know, the assessment we use um, is scientifically validated through a partner organization. 
And they have just a basket of questions, takes five minutes for an employee to fill out, but it's broken down by demographics. And you can get really specific depending on your employee population and your comfort level with breaking it down. But you very quickly see that people of color are having a very different experience as well as women and you know, all the marginalized groups. I think the most telling metric is fairness. Mm-hmm. The perceived level of fairness in the workplace is about 20 percentage points less for women of color than men, white men. I mean, 20 percentage points. That's real and that's everywhere. So we're not making stuff up. And sometimes you have to see the data to be like, no way that's yeah. happening here. So you need data. You need a data for a baseline too, because a lot of times we just went into ran, you know, random DEI training. It's like, there's a lot of studies that have shown DEI training has really caused a lot of polarization um, with your you know, woke, which I don't like that word, but you know, just to use that word, you're with it or you're not. And then there's not a lot of middle ground where I think most people actually sit. And that's those again, are the people we need to reach. And that, that'd be the third thing, middle manager training and not blanket DEI training. There's a lot of pushback with mandatory. I use the word expected as part of being a leader. We expect you to be inclusive. And these are the experiences you need to have to have the toolkit available. And I love using like practical exercises and training. Like I I love to just ask people like survey your network. Like who do you choose to spend time with? (laughs) I mean, really think about that question. Most people spend time with people like them. (laughs) It's affinity bias. It's human behavior 101. Doesn't make you a bad guy. It just means you can do better, right? And so how can you do better? Who do you know that you could build relationships with? Where could you network that's different? Where could you spend time on social media and who you follow? Like, it's actually not that difficult to broaden your horizons. We just don't do it unless we're poked a little bit. And then too, like we talked about earlier, like practical things, like asking your employees some questions. Like, I love the question, what could I do to be more inclusive? Going through some inclusive leadership training, I'd love to get some feedback on this. And, you know, I mean, if there's a power dynamic, sometimes people aren't honest. But I think if you ask it in a genuine, authentic way, people will give you good feedback. And there's 360s and other things you can do if you want anonymous. But I think those are the things. Senior leadership measurement and that middle manager, like we've got to get better at those things. Otherwise, I, I worry about the future of DEI. I've been doing this work for eight years and... I've never seen it so polarized before. It's concerning. Really? So so why do you think it's so um, polarized? Because of the style of the training that people have been doing or? Yeah. yeah. And this might be more in the States. Um, as of late, like New York Times um, and the Atlantic and a couple other pieces have come out about DEIs doing more harm than good. And you I have. Because they see it as people, um, things like Me Too and things like that, where people um, start becoming them and us about it when really what you're yeah. talking about is something that should be yeah. organic and and, yeah. and inclusive but yeah it's this kind of it's, there's a bit of there's a bit of finger pointing isn't there there's that sense of it which perhaps is oh feel bad and then they feel guilty and oh and those sorts of things and then it's like i still have the power so i can do what i want I, and i think that's the real challenge power structures have not changed who's in power representation has not changed uh, Fortune 500 companies, we had a record level of women in leadership at 10, 10%. The first time ever we've had double digit women in leadership roles, which is astounding. Wow. I think that's worse than the UK. Is it? Uh, I yeah. I, again, gender, we are uh, unfortunately way behind here. And if you think about representation hasn't changed, power structures haven't changed. So the people that keep out crying and sharing their stories and resources like me. It's like, 
we're kind of exhausted. Like y'all aren't really willing to change. You're willing to talk about it, but the action piece isn't happening. So I just think we have to be more diligent about building that middle ground. Uh, I think DEI work is paradoxical, meaning there's a both and you cannot understand what it's like to be a person of color and you can be an anti-racist. You can say and do something problematic, hopefully not super problematic, but you can be forgiven and you can still be a good person too, right? And, and if we if we were just a little bit more forgiving and could build that middle ground, I think we'd have a lot more people engaged in the work, but we've made it very painful for people to say or do the right thing. It's it's mm. a like a balance beam anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like people feeling embarrassed for a bit. Because there is a thing though, you don't really want, I've got a son and daughter, it's like you don't want white males to feel guilty so it's not their, their fault but it's it's a real kind of tricky um tricky way of putting it right but the thing that um i suppose if i'm taking away from that in terms of the hr you mentioned things like 360 where you could put these or surveys where you could put ha, make sure that, that you've got the right questions that's interesting there about how it's people's perception is what's important so your point you know actually do i do i believe that the company so it's not about the leaders who look and go we're not racist we've got a very objective um fair selection processes of course it's all fine thinking it is what we need to do is actually go out and listen to our own organizations and get some internal data so based on what we could educate ourselves about what the data says externally but what would be very powerful is getting real perception so um, which is slightly different from the data I think I've talked about with on DEI before which might be about sort of metrics of recruitment and metrics of people in senior positions this is about a metric of how fair and you know what people's experience is uh, and get that sort of thing that'd be quite you want both I mean D and I right you want D is the representation data you want to measure at every rank in the organization and you want to look at the leaky bucket that usually happens with recruiting and hiring. And then you want to look at the C-suite that tends to not have very diverse representation at all. And everywhere in between, you want to know who you promote, who you don't. That's representation. It's a lagging indicator. A leading indicator would be inclusion data. That's measuring the attitudes, the behaviors, the perceptions of folks. So when you get that data, as many times as we sliced and diced it to senior leaders are like, we're good. They're usually like, if you slice and dice the data by level, it's the frontline employees. And that happens in employee engagement surveys too. Yeah. But where are the most diverse folks at the front line? So it just, it becomes strikingly obvious. Like we've got some work to do. I think for any leader that cares about the health of their business, they know people is their competitive advantage. Like we can't, you know, we can widget each other anymore and provide great service. But if you don't have good people, you're not going to survive long-term. If you have unhappy people and people that don't feel included, they're not going to stay. We don't stay places. We don't feel like we belong. Yeah. And again, so that's a very practical reason why you need to do it from the point of view of the, um, it should be on the C-suite's agenda. Retention is a massive issue for everybody in terms of of inclusion. Uh, Julie, this has been a really interesting conversation. I find it really powerful. And there's quite a few takeaways. I was thinking the things we can do practically about, you know, it's not about us. It's not about rescuing things we can look at and make sure the, I like that. Remember to go to the leading indicators. So, you know, look at our engagement surveys that loads of people are doing. Have we got that kind, those kind of questions in there, not just the lagging indicators? Uh, if people want to reach out to you, know more about what you do or take advantage of your resources, how would they find you? 
Yeah, it's super easy. So on social media, um, it's the same as our website, Next Pivot Point. So nextpivotpoint.com. Anywhere you're in social, you can follow that handle as well, Next Pivot Point. And then we're really active on LinkedIn, um, sharing resources and articles and things. So feel free to check us out there. I'm um, You can follow me at Julie Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. And then just looping back to the website, there's a plethora of free resources. So if you want to check out our resources page, you can get a full like 10 page set of resources of things I'm constantly updating and vetting, as well as our DEI strategy roadmap tool. So you can actually, if you don't have a DEI strategy, it gives you all the questions to ask. So you can build your roadmap out as well as a starter assessment. And those are all complimentary. Oh, that's fantastic. That sounds really useful because I think lots of people don't know where to start with the DEI strategies and things like that. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the HR Uprising podcast. Thanks for having me. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.